0: And we are back here in Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and to the rest of the world via the online streaming service CFMU.ca and Kojiko Channel 288. And I'm very pleased, as promised, to be presenting on the program today, longtime labor hero, a key voice. In the Canadian labor movement, Sid Ryan. He has served six years as the president of the Ontario Federation of Labor, where he represented over 1 million workers, and previously 17 years as president of CUPE Ontario and general vice president of CUPE National. I believe we have him on the line. How are you doing today, Sid?
1: I'm doing very well, Brandon. Thank you for the opportunity to say a few words online.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. This is exactly what this program is about. And the work you do encapsulates a lot of what we stand for. And of course, we're very excited that you're coming tomorrow to Hamilton. For our listeners who don't know, Sid is launching his brand new book, a Grander Vision, My Life in the Labor Movement. Very comprehensive book uh, that you can learn a lot from. And that is going to be happening tomorrow at Stonewall's Pub. In fact, um, I have just have the QP9114 uh, local on my phone here. And it says, tomorrow, June 13, 7 o'clock PM at Stonewall's 339 York Boulevard. I understand, however, that seating opens at uh, 6 o'clock. Were you aware of that, Sid?
1: Yes, uh, Henry actually told me about it. Uh, Henry Tambrink, Evans, uh, he he informs me. Um, I think it's 2.39 York Boulevard, but I'm sure everybody knows where Stonewall's is anyways. That's
0: right. I'm I'm sure no one even checked. They just know to go to Stonewall's. You got Uh,
1: it. And if I could, Brendan, I know the Raptors game is on tomorrow night, but I, I just called that restaurant this afternoon, and they told me that they've got 12 big screens in there, so... Uh, anybody who wants to catch the game later on, they could do it from Stonewalls also.
0: I was just informed about that as well. Stonewalls is going to be showing the Raptors game at nine o'clock p.m. or thereabouts, so people can go to your talk, they can get the whole talk and ask questions and get a book signed and everything, and then they can still catch the Raptors game. Perfect. There's no reason not to attend this event tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, we're is... also
1: trying to uh, to uh, entice some uh, NDP folks who will be in town the Ontario NDP convention a lot of people will come in on the Thursday night because the convention starts on the uh, on the Friday so hopefully any NDPers out there will also feel uh, uh, feel uh, that you can come in, come down and enjoy the the moment
0: well absolutely the uh, truth is I spoke with Libby Davies recently on the program she was in Hamilton last week and already NDP people were congregating in the city and some of them went to see Libby so I fully expect the same to happen f- for you tomorrow Fantastic. That reminds me actually, I mean, this is not your first stop. Uh, you, you are touring this book across Ontario, across wherever you can go in Canada. So, how's the tour been going so far?
1: It's been fantastic. The, um, the opening of it uh, was on the Lula Lounge uh, in April, April the 23rd. It was a packed house with 250 people. It was really uh, exciting, lots of energy. Uh, likewise, then I went up to North Bay, up to Sudbury, cross into Ottawa. I've had one out in uh, Oshawa, which was a great event as well. Um, So hopefully I'm going into Brampton next week and then the week after into Niagara Falls. Not Niagara Falls, sorry, St. Catherine's. So uh, yeah, it's going very, very well. I'm, I'm very pleased with it all.
0: Well, I could probably ask you, what are people interested in terms of the tour and your questions for the many aspects of your book but when we look at your book, this is a work that is very grounded, just like your life is very grounded in the labor movement, in the working class. It's fascinating, the journey it takes you from your youth to the work that you have done and what you're doing presently. I mean, let's look at the the crucible in which you were formed, the, the working class neighborhoods of Dublin. Uh, you know, it, it looks to me as if struggle is imprinted on you, because from your earliest days, your family is there struggling to make ends meet and... This is a class struggle in the sense that you have conditions of existence where you are. You have got to put food on the table. You've got to get peat bricks for, for heating. You've got to rent clothes. Um, but there wasn't much direct struggle against a sort of a class oppressor in, in those days in your youth because from what I read, there didn't seem to be a lot of consciousness or awareness among you know your peers uh, that you were – the greater battle that you were in, you were kind of being ribbed there now and then because you were always trying to make ends meet. You had broken shoes sometimes and you had to do a lot of bicycle errands and messaging and little jobs. So sometimes it seems when consciousness is low about the level of struggle, sometimes people's anger and frustration can be, you know, misdirected against members of other members of their class that are being oppressed. Do you find that to, to be the case, sometimes consciousness is low and um, and maybe frustration is misdirected?
1: Very much so. Um, you know, particularly like growing up in, in Dublin, we lived in social housing. It was, uh, you know, a ten, nine siblings, including myself, ten, my mother and father, and my grandmother. We all lived in a two-bedroom house. Uh, little or no work in the, in the mid to late 1950s in, in Ireland. Keeping in mind, Ireland only gained its independence in 1947. Um, so, uh, you know, so we, we actually were a fairly young nation, uh, not too much of a manufacturing sector. A lot of it was agriculture. So, uh, that didn't really apply so much to so living in the city. So little or no work, my father goes off to England. And, um, so, but we lived in, you know, in social housing where there were like 50,000 homes that all basically looked the very same. There might've been five or six of these, uh, communities, um, around the outskirts of Dublin. Um, and there are breeding grounds for, for problems, you know, poverty and later on, drug addictions and crime. Um, but, you know, I will say when I was growing up, at least I had a, I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, we didn't realize that we were living in poverty because practically everybody around us was, was the same way. But to your point, yes. you know, there was a lot of folks. Would um, you know? It happens in the working class. If you're one rung, a half a rung above others in your in your community, they tend to to look down or they tend to um, make fun of you know. Particularly even if, you know the the travelling people or the gypsies, as we would refer to them at the time um, in Ireland. Like you know, they were sort of uh, even you know lower down the rung than the working class were, and they'd get an awful time. Uh, and you know, and it carried on. By the way, when when Ireland became much more multicultural, uh, folks from from four corners of the world get, get an awful time in, in Ireland uh, with racism. The Polish uh, community, in particular. So you know, there's, there's you know, class consciousness. Is wasn't as prevalent back in the 1950s, 1960s. Although there is a strong labour movement uh, in uh, in Dublin, uh, in Ireland. There's a there's a very strong labour movement. But um, you know, it didn't seem to be impacting upon us and our family at least. Anyway, not in the not in the 1950s. Now, my dad comes back from England and he leads the strike uh, in the 1960s, and I'm about 12 years old at the time. And this is where I began to realize that there was there was a fight, there was uh, a class struggle going on, and our house became then the tiny house we lived in. We lived in a two bedroom home. It became the strike headquarters. And, and out of that became uh, my sense of, of uh, trade unionism and what it was all about, and particularly my father, who really and truly lost a lot of friends over the strike because he refused to talk to some of his friends who crossed picket lines. And he's explaining to me as a 12-year-old what a blackleg was. And uh, so I, you know, I, I began to learn and became a bit more conscious of, of, of unions and of our rights and class consciousness as uh, I've gone into my early teens.
0: Absolutely definitely there, I noticed a change in the book when your father returned. You did come to learn about a broader struggle that was happening, which would have an impact later on. And, you know, when we talk about struggle, you, you mention, of course, racism in Ireland um, among newcomers and among more marginalized groups. But of course, there's also the big picture of the troubles and the racism, and anti-Catholic prejudice—that I mean—that you experienced that at an early age as well, and that must have made you very sensitive to injustice and discrimination.
1: Well, it did, you know, because the south of Ireland is essentially ninety-five percent Catholic. And Northern Ireland is, is, you know, at that time was probably 60-40, uh, 60% Protestant, which completely controlled uh, all of the, uh, the the levers of government. The uh, best jobs went to the Protestants, best housing, um, gerrymandering of the voting system. Uh, civil rights became a huge issue, so as a 16-year-old... Uh, I was sent from Dublin with the company I worked with uh, up to Belfast uh, with, uh, with a journey person. I was like 16 at the time. And uh, it was 1968 and the troubles were just beginning to erupt uh, and people coming out onto the streets. And, yeah, so I was in, in these uh, what we call digs, a place where we were staying, in a woman's home that opened their home up and had like a little bed and breakfast, basically. And uh, there were some folks there from uh, Northern Ireland, Protestants, working in the shipyards. And when he found out we were from Dublin, he turned around and basically called me a little Fenian bastard. Uh, so like, my eyes were really opened up at this stage. Like, there was a lot of bitterness uh, and venom in the way this uh, this man you know, spoke to me. So I, I got a real sense at an early age when I saw the, the struggles on the streets and the civil rights movement being attacked and the police standing by and letting it happen. I, you could see that the, the state became the instrument, in some respects, of the oppression of the Catholic community in Northern Ireland. And, uh, and so they took to the streets uh, very much at the same time as the civil rights movement in the United States was, was coming to the fore as well. So, uh, and probably, you know, I would dare say the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland was inspired by the civil rights movement in the U.S.
0: Yes, you make that argument in the book. And, I mean, it's obvious that in your upbringing, you experienced or saw discrimination and oppression from many angles. You saw people below you socially getting discriminated against. You experienced discrimination. And later when you came to Canada for economic opportunity, you you had uh, opportunities for jobs and such, even though you yourself were an immigrant, uh, because not all immigrants were created equal. And you talked about that in the book. You could go into that, but certainly you realized Canada was also not a utopia in the sense that discrimination still existed. But I have to ask you, actually, uh, you know, the, the first chapters of the book, you, you are learning trades, you're becoming a worker, and you a skilled worker. You were doing plumbing, pipe fitting, and stuff like that. Uh, do you still remember that? Can you fix the kitchen sink? Or how, how that, much do you remember from that?
1: It's funny you say that. Um, I, was, I just fixed the, uh, the laundry tub the other day, took out the, uh, the old one, put in the new one. No, no, I, I, you know, I'm a plumber by trades. Um, and I worked. In, in the Pickering Nuclear Power Plant as a pipe filler, or steam filler for 17 years, um, you know, before becoming a full-time president of keep Ontario. So no, no, I, I, I know my trade. I, I know how to, uh, my working way around the tools, uh, not a problem. And um, sometimes I, I, I wish I should be back on the tools as opposed to taking the abuse in some cases that I took at the OFL from some of the union leaders, but that's another story.
0: Maybe you still are. Plumbing in, in the <laughs> sewer, so to speak. Uh, yeah, no, well, you mentioned the Pickering plant, of course. You actually got involved in early struggles on health and safety and were a pioneer in looking at some of the safety issues that had been totally neglected within nuclear power plants and some very exotic technology. So you became more and more involved in labor, eventually becoming the president of CUPE. And I wanted to talk about that because that was a very big time in your life. Um, You engaged in so many progressive causes in your tenure as a CUPE leader. And I guess one of the more controversial or difficult struggles there for you was your support for international law and solidarity in Palestine. This is something we followed in Hamilton and people that are involved in social justice and support for Palestine. I'm a member of Independent Jewish Voices and a number of related organizations. And you were there in 2008, 2006, 2002. It goes back a long way, having debates, for example, about the UN resolutions like 242 that Israel is supposed to obey. I mean, yeah that goes back to 2002 so you were trying to at an early time for the labor movement and ndp type politics you were educating people and taking a progressive stance what were you trying to do in the union when you when you brought up the issue early on of the un resolutions and what stand the union would take on that
1: well essentially i began to realize that i had a very powerful platform as the president of the largest union in Ontario, you know, representing 220,000 members. So I decided, um, what's the point in having a platform if you're not going to speak out on issues of social justice, which were always, a, you know, was a big issue for me? And I looked around and thought to myself, there's too many unions going on junkets, uh, which is, you know, international trips, but they become sightseeing tours and, and, and a way to party as opposed to a way to go and actually work with uh, with people on the ground and try and make a difference in life, but also too, I wanted to bring a sense of, you know, worker to worker solidarity um, in other countries and other issues, and coming out of Ireland, uh, of course, you know, having uh, Ireland, you know, suffered 800 years of oppression from the from the uh, from the English, and and still struggling to get out from underneath that oppression in Northern Ireland and have a united Ireland, so I, I came to that question of Palestinians, uh, with Peter Levovich, actually, a good friend of mine, rest his soul, who passed away a couple of years ago prematurely. Um, Peter brought a sense of social justice, even though he came from the Jewish faith. He had a real sense of justice uh, for Palestinians and fought on the floor of the Ontario Federation of Labour to change policies and try and get the the Labour movement moving away from um, just uh, total and absolute support for, for the Israeli uh, government as, a, as opposed to as, for Palestinians. So I decided, uh, listening to Peter and other folks and my own history dealing with oppression in Ireland, um, that I should try and educate the uh, the CUPE membership. So we did that by introducing uh, resolutions uh, 238 and 242 in order to have a debate on the floor of the Convention and in the course of that debate um, be able to educate our members as to what was behind um, the, the occupation in in, uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, Now, of course, these were already resolutions that the Canadian government supports. But regardless of that, I was absolutely pilloried by the Canadian Jewish Congress and B'nai B'rith and others for even daring to have this debate on the floor of a convention. But we matured enough to to the point where three or four years later, when BDS was launched by the Palestinian Labour Movement, um, I I was approached to see if I would lend support to it. And I said, of course I would. It's a a nonviolent way of, of... uh, raising um, awareness of the uh, plight of Palestinians. So we uh, we had a debate on the floor in 2006, keeping in mind now it was about 2003, 2004 maybe, when the BDS movement started to get off the ground. So we passed that almost unanimously at convention, because the membership had already been educated about the Palestinian issue. It wasn't the first time that they were hearing about it. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the, the, the assault that I, that I received from the attacks from the Canadian Jewish Congress again, B'nai B'rith and, and others, I got something like 30,000 emails coming in at me uh, from all over the world, but mostly from Canada, um, because we managed to pass it. And I can see now, in hindsight, why they were so upset. Uh, at the time, CUPE Ontario was the largest organization in the world, to support CDS. I mean, you've got a an organization with 220,000 members. Uh, these folks could actually see what, in fact, was was uh, going to happen, that this would spread. And by the way, it's taken a long time, but it has. Uh, Uniform now came out and supported this. Uh, Cup W supported it. Teacher unions are supporting it. Churches uh, organizations are supporting it. Um, the Green Party did support it for a while, and then they backed away from it. Um, but now it's like it's old hat. Um, when Unifor passed this resolution, there wasn't a peep out of Benet Britain or a peep out of any organization. Um, but when I did it, uh, it was, you know, we were, we were pioneers in that regard, and uh, I took a lot of heat and a lot of abuse because of that.
0: Yes, but in your own union, most people were in favor.
1: Uh, oh, QP was brilliant. I got hardly any complaints at all from CUPY. I got a couple of complaints, maybe a half a dozen emails at best, Um, But everybody else, uh, we had an opportunity a year later to go back to convention and see if, if in fact, people wanted to reverse that decision. Nobody even brought it forward as a a motion for for debate. Uh, So, no, Klupe's been solid on that question and still are solid on it.
0: Yes, you laid out the issue very clearly in the book, which, by the way, for those just tuning in, We're speaking with Sid Ryan, who has recently written his new book, A Grander Vision, My Life in the Labour Movement, that is coming out in Hamilton tomorrow at Stonewalls at uh, 7 o'clock p.m. or 6 o'clock is when seating opens. And that's going to be an event uh, that should be very exciting tomorrow. Uh, Now, Sid, I'm glad you mentioned Peter Leibovitch. Of course, he was the person who created this program, and we try to do things in his image, or the way that uh, he would have done them. And reading your book, there's so many examples, so many cases um, of things that Peter was involved in, things that I was involved in. It's interesting to read about it. In the Hamilton sense, of course, there's the steel workers come up because you've been uh, participating in solidarity with the pension struggles and the union struggles of 1005 and the steel workers in Hamilton. And you've been part of some very broad campaigns that People really should have been involved in if they weren't already. I mean, you mentioned Palestine in the book, but there's also things that are perhaps even more difficult in the way that they haven't been universally adopted. I'm thinking of After your section on Palestine, you talked about the effort to oppose the FTAA, the the neoliberal free trade agreement that would be very damaging to labor across the Americas. And, you know, you met with a lot of people and movements and union leaders from all over Latin America. It's a very interesting section to talk to people in Cuba and Bolivia uh, and Venezuela and Colombia and you meet all these union leaders and what really catches me, I guess, is how labor in Canada and the US mostly failed to heed the lessons that you had learned about the free trade. Because, you know, you opposed the corporate free trade agreements, the FTAA and others, because they were not designed around worker interests. They'd lead to a race to the bottom. And you and the left and the people that opposed all this have been portrayed as crackpots since 1989, myself included. And I was a little baby being hoisted on my father's shoulders at the uh, protests against NAFTA against Mulroney back at that time. And all of the things that you predicted and that others predicted would happen have happened. And you can see what's happened to labor standards and wages. Everything you warned about has come to pass. And yet, you are very incisively write that. It was Donald Trump who picked up on a lot of the dissatisfaction caused by the free trade agreements. And people like Donald Trump because the institutional left did not oppose these things properly or consistently. Uh, that's kind of a large part of the problem we face now, isn't it? Because there, there isn't or hasn't been a labor or left voice uniformly and courageously taking positions against neoliberal globalization in these free trade agreements. Uh, so that seems to be a major problem that you've been trying to address.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we actually we proved that you could, in fact, defeat free trade agreements. When George Bush announces in Miami that he was going to go to Quebec City uh, for the OAS, which is the Organization of the Americas, um, he was basically saying that we're now going to go beyond NAFTA and we're going to have a free trade agreement right across the hemisphere. And, uh, you know, I was part of Cuba, Ontario was part of the struggle to say, like, hell, you will. So we mobilized like crazy. And the CLC did as well. But unfortunately, most of the unions, when they got to Quebec City, had cut a deal with the government in order to get some funding for, a, for what they call a parallel people summit. So they took this money and decided then that they would not march to the wall because, you know, the the... The government and others were concerned about 50,000 people um, showing up uh, and possibly pulling down the wire fencing and so on and so forth. So they decided they were going to turn away and march out to an empty parking lot. And I'm like, oh, man, like, how can you do this? This is crazy. Um, so, of course, we broke ranks, CUPE Ontario did, and about 1,000 or 2,000 other people, and we all went down to the wall. Um, but the point was that we had 50,000 people mobilized against the, this free trade agreement. So then we knew we were onto something. So we started working with uh, contacts that I'd made in South America and in Cuba. And then Cuba came on side with Bolivia essentially to say Cuba said we'd like all future meetings uh, of the FTAA to take place in Cuba, in Havana. So we had maybe, I don't know, a half dozen meetings down there. So I met up with. Um, Evo Morales, even, from, uh, from Bolivia. He wasn't the president at the time. He was, he was a counselor. He was running for president. Uh, I was on a panel with him. But anyways, at the end of the day, we managed to mobilize across the hemisphere, and we actually defeated it. So I thought, okay, great. Now we've got uh, some energy going towards uh, opposing free trade agreements. But when Trudeau gets elected, like we went to sleep. The Canadian Labour Congress, um maybe i don't know why but they gave them a free pass on CETA when we had literally millions of europeans on the streets of their capitals berlin um in uh, madrid in uh, london paris millions of them on the streets and collectively that is and here in canada nothing not a whisper like we got a press release coming out of the, CL, out of the clc so so the europeans did not have a partner in canada so they're fighting essentially for our basic rights in this country because um, they understood the elements of the free trade agreements that were going to seize some of their jobs and um, shift offshore. So anyway, we didn't take it on. And then emboldened by that, Trudeau then decided he was just going to unilaterally go ahead and sign the TPP, again, which we opposed as a, as a, as a Labour movement. Um, but the, the CLC were silent and it didn't mobilise people. And consequently, we've got two of the worst a uh, free trade agreement now uh, on the books and, and not a word out of the Labour movement about that. That really bothers me to no end.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I kind of, this relates to a larger problem that you discussed towards the end of the book and there's a sort of common thread in the whole second half and it's that the Labour movement and the Canadian left politically or non non-electorally, it's nowhere near where it could be. Uh, You know, unions are divided by sectoral interests and by petty personality conflicts, which you detail. And the relationship between unions and the NDP is not very functional. You could use the word dysfunctional. It's certainly not as functional as it could be. So in this situation, what do you think the role of, of a political party, in this case, the social democratic party, the NDP or a hypothetical party, what should it be? Like, how are things supposed to move forward in terms of getting the labor movement together, getting the labor movement to have political representation. In what way should these organizations be functioning together?
1: Well, I think the first step has got to be that the NDP have, got to move to the left. I mean, they've got to come up with a really progressive agenda. For God's sakes, if, if, if Bernie Sanders down in the United States and a half a dozen other folks now running for president in the United States on a platform of, of social democracy, or so-called, at least anyway, social democracy, um, but they're moving. They, they've got far more progressive policy down in the United States than what we've got up here. So these toast campaigns that the NDP have been running, the last federal election was a complete and total joke with more care. Uh, And then the one prior to the last provincial election with Andrea Horvath, where she tried to mimic some of the Tory policies, it was just a disaster. Um, So so the Labour movement, a lot of the activists were turned off by these milk toast type of campaigns. So now we have an opportunity, for example, to adopt the, the principles of the Leap Manifesto or the Green New Deal. Which, but the Leap Manifesto is a Canadian version of that, so we can call it what we want. It's the principles within that agreement that I'm interested in. And, you know, the NDP have kind of rejected that out in Edmonton uh, three, four years ago. And then at the last convention in Ottawa, they never really had a serious debate about it. And then we lose a seat in, uh, in, in Nanaimo uh, just recently to the Green Party, and then all of a sudden the NDP have woken up to, the, to, the, uh, to climate change. But I'm not so sure that the policies that they're even advocating right now are actually left enough um, to be able to to attract um the left both away from the from the from the liberals and away from the green party uh, and solidly you know carve out a turf for herself. If they do that, if they were to run on a solid left- wing campaign um, and left wing policies, then I'm positive that, Folks will see, look, why would I be voting for for a paler shade of, of left? Uh, why not just go with the NDP if they've got a solid policy uh, in place, left-wing policies in place? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, I think the CLC needs to have a knock-them-down, drag-them-out debate about the relationship with the NDP. We are being dragged into the Liberal camp by unions like Unifor, who are sucking up to the Liberals at every opportunity. Some leaders at this, not all leaders at the CLC, but some of them are doing the same thing. There's ne- there has never been a debate in the Labour movement about our relationship with the NDP and strategic voting. And we desperately need to have that. And unions need to be called out, those who are currently in favour with Liberals, um, because they're hurting the rest of the Labour movement. And they're doing it based on single uh, issue type uh, of issues. Like for example, Unifor sucks up to the liberals because they're looking for money, taxpayers' monies to be invested um, in corporations such as the, in the auto sector. You know, some of the richest corporations in the world. Uh, you have Unifor in begging them for for subsidies to these rich corporations, allegedly to save jobs. Well, how did that work out in Oshawa After all the billions of dollars of subsidies that have been given to General Motors over the years, they walk away from the biggest plant that they had in the, in, uh, in, in Canada. So you can see that those policies are not working, and we have to stop these unions dragging us into the liberal camp. Um, and it's not just Unifar, by the way. SEIU are doing it as well. Um, the nurses are doing it. Um, a lot of the teacher unions are doing it. Like, it's, it, there's got to be a debate, and, uh, and people need to decide what side of the fence that they're on. Um, and those who are on the NDP side of the fence, if you cannot get everybody into that camp, then the, there ought to be, you know, a sort of a coalition of unions that support the NDP and really start being vocal about it and, and stop hiding their support underneath a bush.
0: Yes. Well, and of course, uh, you've also had views about strategic voting, which you discuss in the book. You know, I mean, I think you've actually given us a very clear picture of what the book entails, the kind of things people can expect to find with regard to your childhood and your experiences with discrimination. You're coming to Canada and learning about the various aspects of union practice and your role in CUPE and your role in the OFL and your prescriptions for the future. You've talked about it here, but of course your view about social unionism and the direction, the grander vision that should go forward is very detailed. And, you know, you look at all the elements of what this kind of comprehensive program could include. So you're going to be talking about all of this tomorrow at uh, stone walls at seven o'clock. So we, we really encourage people to go there and learn more about this from you in person and get a copy of the book and get it signed and ask questions and everything like that. This is um, obviously a talk that's very relevant to the interests of people in Hamilton from a wide variety of areas. So uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about this. Really appreciate this. And really, I hope that you have a a really full book launch tomorrow.
1: Fantastic, Brandon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks. thanks. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow night.
0: Yes, we'll see you then. Bye-bye, Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And that was, of course, Sid Ryan. And he's describing his book, A Grander Vision, my Life in the Labor Movement. It's got a foreword by Jerry Adams and blurbs, or a few blurbs from Naomi Klein and, uh, and whatnot. But actually as I said earlier, um, Peter Leibovich is mentioned in the book. That's of course former host of this program, Unusual Sources. There's actually a picture of him halfway through the book along with a lot of other pictures when Sid is describing uh, his work f- for Palestine. And As a member and then leader of QP, um, the campaigns that he engaged in. There's a picture of Sid and Peter on page 172. This is a very interesting inside look at the labor movement in Canada, inside QP, inside the kind of struggles you get involved in or engaged with when you stand up for justice. And it reminds me of the book I read not very long ago, uh, Libby Davies' autobiography, where she too was involved in the NDP, more specifically, and. In that case, that was her battleground when she wanted to do work on Palestine and other things. And of course, there's there's costs and battles to be fought when you're pushing the line or pushing the agenda on social movements and social justice. And uh, you certainly get a sense of that from Sid's book. So I, I really hope... People come out tomorrow, Uh, as I said, there's (laughs) every reason to be there and no reason not to be there. You've got Sid, you've got him talking about his book, you'll be able to get the book, you can eat and drink, and then the Raptors game will be on right there on 12 big screens so you don't have to rush home to go catch the Raptors game because you can just stay there after seeing Sid. So uh, that's what I'm going to do and that's what people I know are going to do. So we got to take a short break here and um, we'll be back.